0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 79. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on July 3rd, 2022, in New Orleans. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the history of the Americans. Really. My way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, I like digging up and talking about obscure, or at least not famous, speeches by presidents and other luminaries in American history. Last year for the 4th, I did a sidebar on a speech by Woodrow Wilson before he was president in which he smuggled an argument for regulation of big business into a speech about the Declaration of Independence. This year's episode is about 18-year-old Daniel Webster's first public speech. On the 4th of July, 1800, in front of an audience of good citizens in Hanover, New Hampshire... The speech is interesting for a number of reasons, including that it shows how early in our history the 4th of July became the national holiday for ordinary Americans, and also that it is an early indicator that Webster would go on to become perhaps the greatest orator in American history. The ugly truth is that I knew almost nothing about Daniel Webster until I read the first 60 pages of Robert Ramini's biography of him to prepare for this episode. In Ramini's words, Webster was a statesman, one of the five greatest senators in the history of the United States Congress, a magnificent orator, arguably the best the nation ever produced, an excellent secretary of state, an outstanding lawyer, and an important contributor to the constitutional development of the United States. Among other things, Webster would in his time argue more than 200 cases before the Supreme Court, including the Dartmouth College case, which would establish corporate personhood in the United States, bumper stickers that announce that corporations aren't people are arguing with Daniel Webster, McCullough v. Maryland, which confirmed that federal law is supreme over state law, and Gibbons v. Ogden which established that state governments could not interfere with interstate commerce on navigable waterways. All three of those decisions bear on high-profile Supreme Court cases even today. Webster's reputation as an orator was such that everybody who heard him remembered the moment. The first paragraph of Ramini's biography gives a sense of the experience. Quote, That voice. It mesmerized, it dazzled, and it rang out like a trumpet. Never shrill, never unpleasantly loud, but deep, dark, with a roll of thunder in it, tempered by a richness of tone and powered by a massive chest that sent it hurtling great distances, even in the open air. It turned, quote, on the harps of the blessed and shook the earth underground. Under perfect control, it never broke, however high it was driven to convey an emotion or emphasize a point. For a typical three, four, or even five-hour oration, it usually needed some form of lubrication to be fired up and ready to perform. But once it started to function, it sang out like music in clear and sonorous cadences and swelled and diminished on command. Nobody who heard it ever forgot it. One carried the sound of it to the grave. Back to me. In 1800, however, Webster was only 18 and a junior at Dartmouth College. He had at first struggled as a speaker at a time when oration was fundamental to a serious education, failing to rise in class when called upon. Perhaps he was shy because he came to Dartmouth from a country family, well down the social strata, from the well-heeled young man who studied there back in the day. Regardless, his reluctance to speak was young Daniel's cross to bear, and he drove himself to overcome it. One of his advantages was an extraordinary memory, at least for things he could read. He could memorize hundreds of lines of Latin overnight and recite them the next day without resorting to notes. And so it was that he began to speak. And then he began to speak so well that his reputation spread to the point that the city fathers of Hanover invited him to speak on the 24th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. With that, I will read his speech, not as young Webster would have done, but as I would do on a podcast with a few interjections along the way. Try to imagine, if you can, how it would have sounded in the moment so now follows the speech of the young Daniel Webster on the 4th of July, 1800. Countrymen, Brethren, and Fathers, We are now assembled to celebrate an anniversary, ever to be held in dear remembrance by the Sons of Freedom. Nothing less than the birth of a nation, nothing less than the emancipation of three millions of people from the degrading chains of foreign domination is the event we commemorate. Twenty-four years have this day elapsed since United Columbia first raised the standards of liberty and echoed the shouts of independence. Interjecting. Some of you may not know that Columbia was a new Latin contrivance combining the name of the famous Admiral of the Ocean Sea with the I.A. suffix, common in the Latin names of countries. Think Britannia for Great Britain and so forth. The image of the torch-bearing female Columbia was the personification of the country before it was replaced by images of the Statue of Liberty around the turn of the last century. Today, Lady Columbia survives mainly in the logo for the film studio Columbia Pictures, but she used to be ubiquitous. Back to Webster. Those of you who were then reaping the iron harvest of the Marshall Field, whose bosoms then palpitated for the honor of America, will at this time experience a renewal of all that fervent patriotism, of all those indescribable emotions, which then agitated your breasts. As for us, who were... Either then unborn or not far enough advanced beyond the threshold of existence to engage in the grand conflict for liberty, we now most cordially unite with you to greet the return of this joyous anniversary, to hail the day that gave us freedom, and hail the rising glories of our country. On occasions like this, you have Heretofore, been addressed from the stage on the nature, the origin, the expediency of civil government. The field of political speculation has here been explored by persons possessing talents to which the speaker of the day can have no pretensions. There's your obligatory false modesty moment. Declining, therefore, a dissertation on the principles of civil polity you will indulge me in slightly sketching on those events which have originated, nurtured, and raised to the present grandeur the Empire of Colombia. As no nation on the globe can rival us in the rapidity of our growth since the conclusion of the Revolutionary War, so none, perhaps, ever endured greater hardships and distresses than the people of this country previous to that period we behold a feeble band of colonists engaged in the arduous undertaking of a new settlement in the wilds of North America, their civil liberty being mutilated and the enjoyment of their religious sentiments denied them in the land that gave them birth. They fled their country. They braved the dangers of the then almost unnavigated ocean and sought on the other side of the globe an asylum from the iron grasp of tyranny and the more intolerable scourge of ecclesiastical persecution. But gloomy, indeed, was their prospect when arrived on this side the Atlantic, scattered in detachments along a coast immensely extensive, at a remove of more than 3,000 miles from their friends on the eastern continent. They were exposed to all those evils and endured all those difficulties to which human nature seems liable. Destitute of convenient habitations, the inclemencies of the seasons attacked them, the midnight beasts of prey prowled terribly around them, and the more pretentious yell of savage fury incessantly assailed them. But the same undiminished confidence in almighty God, which prompted the first settlers of this country to forsake the unfriendly climes of Europe, still supported them, under all their calamities, and inspired them with fortitude almost divine. Having a glorious issue to their labors now in prospect, they cheerfully endured the rigors of the climate, pursued the savage beast to his remotest haunt, and stood undismayed in the dismal hour of Indian battle. Scarcely were the infant settlements freed from those dangers when at first environed them, ere the clashing interests of France and Britain involved them anew in war. The colonists were now destined to combat with well-appointed, well-disciplined troops from Europe, and the horrors of the tomahawk and the scalping knife were again renewed. But these frowns of fortune, distressing as they were, had been met without a sigh and endured without a groan had not imperious Britain presumptuously arrogated to herself the glory of victories achieved by the bravery of American militia. Louisbourg must be taken, Canada attacked, and a frontier of more than 1,000 miles defended by untutored yeomanry, while the honor of every conquest must be ascribed to the English army. Interjecting, these are all references to the French and Indian War— Webster's suggesting that the English victory in that war, including the conquest of New France, was a triumph of Americans, not the British. The siege of Louisbourg in 1758 was a critical turning point in the British conquest of French Canada. Back to Webster. But while Great Britain was thus ignominiously stripping her colonies of their well-earned laurel and triumphantly weaving it into the stupendous wealth of her own martial glories. She was unwittingly teaching them to value themselves, and effectually to resist, in a future day, her unjust encroachments. The pitiful tale of taxation now commences. The unhappy quarrel, which issued in the dismemberment of the British Empire, has here its origin. England, now triumphant over the united powers of France and Spain, is determined to reduce to the condition of slaves her American subjects. We might now display the legislatures of the several states together with the General Congress, petitioning, praying, remonstrating, and like dutiful subjects, humbly laying their grievances before the throne. On the other hand, we could exhibit a British Parliament assiduously devising means to subjugate America, disdaining our petitions, trampling on our rights, and menacingly telling us, in language not to be misunderstood, you shall be slaves. We could mention the haughty, tyrannical, perfidious gage at the head of the standing army. We could show our brethren attacked and slaughtered at Lexington, our property plundered and destroyed at Concord. Recollection can still pain us, with the spiral flames of burning Charleston, the agonizing groans of aged parents, the shrieks of widows, orphans, and infants, indelibly impressed on our memory, still live the dismal scenes of Bunker's awful mount, the grand theater of New England bravery where slaughter stalked, grimly triumphant, where relentless Britain saw her soldiers, the unhappy instruments of despotism fallen in heaps beneath the nervous arm of injured freemen. There the great Warren fought, and there, alas, he fell. Valuing life only as it enabled him to serve his country, he freely resigned himself, a willing martyr in the cause of liberty, and now lies encircled in the arms of glory. Interjection. We haven't gotten to the Revolutionary War yet in the history of the Americans, but I trust you got the references to Lexington Concord, Bunker Hill and the death there of Patriot Joseph Warren. Back to Webster for some poetry mixed into his speech. Peace to the Patriot's shades, let no rude blast disturb the willow that nods o'er his tomb. Let orphan tears bedew his sacred urn And flames loud trump proclaim the hero's name, Far as the circuit of the spheres extends. But haughty Albion, thy reign shall soon be over, Thou shalt triumph no longer, Thine empire already reels and totters, Thy laurels even now begin to wither, And thy fame decays, Thou hast at length "'Rouse the indignation of an insulted people. "'Thine oppressions they deem no longer tolerable. "'The fourth day of July, 1776, is now arrived, "'and America, manfully springing "'from the torturing fangs of the British lion, "'now rises majestic in the pride of her sovereignty "'and bids her eagle elevate his wings.' the solemn Declaration of Independence is now pronounced amidst crowds of admiring citizens by the Supreme Council of our nation and received with the unbounded plaudits of a grateful people. That was the hour when heroism was proved, when the souls of men were tried. It was then, you venerable patriots, it was then you stretched the indignant arm and unitedly swore to be free. Despising such toys as subjected empires, you then knew no middle fortune between liberty and death. Firmly relying on the patronage of heaven, unwarped in the resolution you had taken, you, then undaunted, met, engaged, defeated the gigantic power of Britain, and rose triumphant over the ruins of your enemies, Trenton, Princeton, Bennington and Saratoga where the successive theaters of your victories, and the utmost bounds of creation are the limits to your fame. The sacred fire of freedom then enkindled in your breasts shall be perpetuated through the long descent of future ages, and burn with undiminished fervor in the bosoms of millions yet unborn." Finally, to close the sanguinary conflict, to grant America the blessings of an honorable peace and clothe her heroes with laurels, Cornwallis, at whose feet the kings and princes of Asia have since thrown their diadems, was compelled to submit to the sword of our father, Washington. The great drama is now completed. Our independence is now acknowledged. And the hopes of our enemies are blasted forever. Colombia is now seated in the form of nations and the empires of the world are lost in the bright effulgence of her glory. Brave, gotta call it brave To chase that dream across the sea Names, then they sign their names For something they be While the blood ran red, we laid our dead and sacred bread. Just me. Wonder what they think if they could see us now. Thus, friends and citizens, did the kind hand of over-ruling providence conduct us through toils, fatigues, and dangers? To independence and peace, if piety be the rational exercise of the human mind, if religion be not a chimera, and if the vestiges of heavenly assistance are clearly traced in these events, which mark the annals of our nation, it becomes us on this day in consideration of the great things which the Lord has done for us to render the tribute of unfeigned thanks to that God." who superintends the universe and holds aloft the scale that weighs the destinies of nations. The conclusion of the Revolutionary War did not conclude the great achievements of our countrymen. Their military character was then, indeed, sufficiently established. But the time was coming, which should prove their political sagacity. Okay, so now he's going to turn to the Constitution. No sooner was peace restored with England... The first grand article of which was the acknowledgment of our independence, then the old system of confederation, dictated at first by necessity and adopted for the purposes of the moment, was found inadequate to the government of an extensive empire. Under a full conviction of this, we then saw the people of these states engaged in a transaction— which is undoubtedly the greatest approximation towards human perfection the political world ever yet experienced, and which perhaps will forever stand in the history of mankind without a parallel. A great republic composed of different states, whose interest in all respects could not be perfectly compatible, then came deliberately forward, discarded one system of government and adopted another, without the loss of one man's blood. There is not a single government now existing in Europe which is not based in usurpation and established, if established at all, by the sacrifice of thousands. But in the adoption of our present system of jurisprudence, we see the powers necessary for government voluntarily springing from the people, their only proper origin, and directed to the public good, their only proper object. With peculiar propriety, we may now felicitate ourselves on that happy form of mixed government under which we live. The advantages resulting to the citizens of the Union from the operation of the Federal Constitution are utterly incalculable, and the day when it was received by a majority of the states shall stand on the catalog of American anniversaries, second to none but the birthday of independence." interjecting. Webster was wrong about that. Most Americans don't even know we have a Constitution Day. But mark your calendars, folks. September 17th, 2022 is the next Constitution Day. So get ready to party. Now Webster considers old Europe in 1800 in the grip of the wars of the French Revolution. In consequence of the adoption of our present system of government, and the virtuous manner in which it has been administered by a Washington and an Adams. We are this day in the enjoyment of peace, while war devastates Europe. We can now sit down beneath the shadow of the olive, while her cities blaze, her streams run purple with blood, and her fields glitter a forest of bayonets. The citizens of America can this day throng the temples of freedom, and renew their oaths of fealty to independence, while Holland, our once sister republic, is erased from the catalogue of nations, while Venice is destroyed, Italy ravaged, and Switzerland, the once happy, the once united, the once flourishing Switzerland, lies bleeding at every pore. No ambitious foe dares now invade our country. No standing army now endangers our liberty. Our commerce, though subject in some degree to the depredations of the belligerent powers, is extended from pole to pole. And our navy, though just emerging from non-existence, shall soon vouch for the safety of our merchantmen and bear the thunder of freedom around the ball. Fair science, too, holds her gentle empire amongst us and almost innumerable altars are raised to her divinity from Brunswick to Florida. Yale, Providence, and Harvard now grace our land, and Dartmouth, towering majestic above the groves which encircle her, now inscribes her glory on the registers of same. Oxford and Cambridge, those oriental stars of literature, shall now be lost— while the bright sun of American science displays his broad circumference in uneclipsed radiance. I want to point out here that Oxford and Cambridge seem to have survived, notwithstanding Webster's prediction. Pleasing indeed were it here to dilate on the future grandeur of America, but we forbear and pause for a moment to drop the tear of affection over the graves of our departed warriors— Their names should be mentioned on every anniversary of independence, that the youth of each successive generation may learn not to value life when held in competition with their country's safety. Okay, so now comes a litany of the heroes of the revolution, many of whom we know more about now as the names of places than as specific people. But Washington we all know, and as Webster speaks he had only been gone for less than seven months. Worcester, Montgomery, and Mercer fell bravely in battle, and their ashes are now entombed on the fields that witness their valor. Let their exertions in our country's cause be remembered, while liberty has an advocate, or gratitude has place in the human heart. Green, the immortal hero of the Carolinas, has since gone down to the grave, loaded with honors and high in the estimation of his countrymen. The courageous Putnam has long slept with his fathers. And Sullivan and Silly, New Hampshire's veteran sons, are no more numbered with the living. With hearts penetrated by an unutterable grief, we are at length constrained to ask, where is our Washington? Where the hero who led us to victory, where the man who gave us freedom, where is he? who headed our feeble army when destruction threatened us, who came upon our enemies like the storms of winter and scattered them like leaves before the Borean blast. Well, O my country, is thy political savior, where, O humanity, thy favorite son? The solemnity of this assembly, the lamentations of the American people will answer, Alas, he is now no more, the mighty is fallen. Yes, Americans, your Washington is gone. He is now consigned to dust and sleeps in dull, cold marble. The man who never felt a wound, but when it pierced his country, who never groaned, but when fair freedom bled, is now forever silent. Wrapped in the shroud of death, the dark dominions of the grave long since received him, and he rests in undisturbed repose. Vain with the attempt to express our loss. Vain, the attempt to describe the feelings of our souls. The months have rolled away since he left this terrestrial orb and sought the shining worlds on high. Yet the sad event is still remembered with increased sorrow. The hoary-headed patriot of 76 still tells the mournful story to the listening infant till the loss of his country touches his heart and patriotism fires his breast. The aged matron still laments the loss of the man beneath whose banners her husband has fought or her son has fallen. At the name of Washington, the sympathetic tear still glistens in the eye of every youthful hero. Nor does the tender sigh yet cease to heave in the fair bosom of Columbia's daughters, Farewell, O Washington, a long farewell. Thy country's tears embalm thy memory. The virtues challenge immortality. Impressed on grateful hearts, thy name shall live till dissolution's deluge drown the world. Interjecting, Daniel's father, Ebenezer, had fought under Washington at White Plains and was present at West Point on the night of Benedict Arnold's defection. Standing guard at the headquarters... Washington is reported to have said, Captain Webster, I believe I can trust you. Young Daniel loved his father, who was devoted to his sons, and he loved that story about his father more than any other. Washington was then and forever the unimpeachable hero of the Webster family, in case that wasn't evident from the speech. Back to Webster, from whom you will hear themes that resonate in American politics even today— and others that seem wildly alien. Although we must feel the keenest sorrow at the demise of our Washington, yet we console ourselves with the reflection that his virtuous compatriot, his worthy successor, the firm, the wise, the inflexible Adams, still survives. Elevated by the voice of his country to the supreme executive magistracy. say that a few times fast, He constantly adheres to her essential interests, and with steady hand draws the disguising veil from the intrigues of foreign enemies and the plots of domestic foes, having the honor of America always in view, never fearing when wisdom dictates. To stem the impetuous torrent of popular resentment, he stands amidst the fluctuations of party and the explosions of faction unmoved as Atlas, while storms and tempests thunder on its brow and oceans break their billows at his feet. Yet all that vigilance of our executive and all the wisdom of our Congress have not been sufficient to prevent this country from being in some degree agitated by the convulsions of Europe. But why shall every quarrel on the other side of the Atlantic interest us in its issue... Why shall the rise or depression of every party there produce here a corresponding vibration? Was this continent designed as a mere satellite to the other? Has not nature here wrought all her operations on her broadest scale? Where are the Mississippis and the Amazons, the Alleghenies and the Andes of Europe, Asia, or Africa— The natural superiority of America clearly indicates that it was designed to be inhabited by a nobler race of men possessing a superior form of government, superior patriotism, superior talents, and superior virtues. Let then the nations of the East vainly waste their strength in destroying each other. Let them aspire at conquest and contend for dominion, till our continent is deluged in blood. But let none, however elated by victory, however proud of triumphs, ever presume to intrude on the neutral station assumed by our country. Now young Webster looks at Napoleon. Britain, twice humbled for her aggressions, has at length been taught to respect us. But France, once our ally, has dared to insult us. She has violated her obligations. She has depredated our commerce. She has abused our government and riveted the chains of bondage on our unhappy fellow citizens. Not content with ravaging and depopulating the fairest countries of Europe, not yet satiated with the contortions of expiring republics, the convulsive agonies of subjugated nations and the groans of her own slaughtered citizens... She has spouted her fury across the Atlantic, and the stars and stripes of independence have almost been attacked in our harbors. When we have demanded reparation, she has told us, give us your money and we will give you peace. Mighty nation, magnanimous republic, let her fill her coffers from those towns and cities which she has plundered, and grant peace, if she can, to the shades of those millions whose death she has caused. But Columbia stoops not to tyrants. Her sons will never cringe to France. Neither a supercilious, five-headed directory, nor the gasconading pilgrim of Egypt, that would be Napoleon, will ever dictate terms to sovereign America. The thunder of our cannon shall ensure the performance of our treaties and fulminate destruction on Frenchmen, till old ocean is crimsoned with blood and gorged with pirates. Interjecting, the American political factions of the time argued whether, even in neutrality, the United States should inch closer to Great Britain, which was favored by Federalists like Webster, or Republican France, favored by Jeffersonians. Back to Webster for some of that. It becomes us on whom the defense of our country will ere long devolve this day most seriously to reflect on the duties incumbent upon us. Our ancestors bravely snatched expiring liberty from the grasp of Britain, whose touch is poison. Shall we now consign it to France, whose embrace is death? We have seen our fathers in the days of Columbia's trouble assume the rough habiliments, that would be clothing, of war, and seek the hostile field. Too full of sorrow to speak, we have seen them wave at last farewell to a disconsolate, a woe-stung family. We have seen them return, worn down with fatigue and scarred with wounds. And we have seen them perhaps no more. For us they fought, for us they bled, for us they conquered. Shall we, their descendants, now basely disgrace our lineage and pusillanimously disclaim the legacy bequeathed us? Shall we pronounce the sad valediction to freedom and immolate liberty on the altars our fathers have raised to her? No. The response of a nation is no. Let it be registered in the archives of heaven Ere the religion we profess and the privileges we enjoy are sacrificed at the shrines of despots and demagogues, let the pillars of creation tremble. Let world be wrecked on world and systems rush to ruin. Let the sons of Europe be vassals. Let her hosts of nations be a vast congregation of slaves. But let us, who are this day free, whose hearts are yet unappalled, and whose right arms are yet nerved for war, assemble before the hallowed temple of Colombian freedom and swear to the God of our fathers to preserve it secure or die at its portals. Back to me. That's it. Strong stuff from an 18-year-old. Robert Ramini describes the reaction of the good townsfolk of Hanover on that day. Quote, The crowd cheered wildly as Daniel concluded. His oration was full of bluster and bombast, florid effusions and rhetorical excesses. But it was just what the occasion called for, and the audience demonstrated its appreciation. Those present remembered especially his large, black, piercing eye peering out under dark, overhanging brows, his broad intellectual forehead, the solemn tones of his voice, and the earnestness with which he threw himself into his subject, evincing the sincerity of his belief that the cause he advocated was that of truth and justice. Back to me, we have the text of the speech today because people in the audience wanted copies, and one of Daniel's friends published it to meet that demand. It would not be Webster's best speech, nor his most famous, but it reminds us, 222 years later, that there was a moment when the United States of America was a revolutionary power, keen on disrupting the status quo rather than defending it. Happy Independence Day, everyone. Please don't take it for granted. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support's very motivating. Please send me questions corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time.